Welcome to the Poet in the City podcast. Poetry is an enormous palace with many, 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 many rooms in it. I just love poetry. I love to read. I love to go to shows. I love to watch stuff on YouTube. You know, ordinary, demotic music made about lives I kind of understood and knew. Because in poetry, you know, you can read something in 30 seconds that will take you right out of all the ruts of the domestic or professional, whatever they are, ruts, and and take you to a, you know that little planet where the poem resides, and then you can be back on your own planet within a minute. Hello, you're listening to episode one of the new Poet in the City podcast with me, Ali Yerkasem. This episode is called Off the Page and Onto the Stage, and it takes a special look at something that's at the heart of what we do here at Poet in the City exploring the act of taking poetry that's written on the page and turning that into live, meaningful and visceral performance. In this programme, I'll be looking at the topic from a range of angles and talking to commentators, poets and performers, including the BBC producer Tim Dee, former Poet Laureate and patron of Poet in the City Sir Andrew Motion, the writer, performance poet and educator Dean Atter and the acclaimed British actress Juliette Stevenson. But first... What about poetry performances of the past? Not just the public ones that have been notable and interesting, but the personal ones. I have a feeling that everyone, or at least most people, have a memory of when they first experienced live poetry for the first time, and how moments like those can leave a lasting impact and a taste for more. Tim D has been a producer with the BBC for over 25 years, making programmes for radio including The Echo Chamber and Poetry Please. The question about a first encounter with poetry is something I asked him when we met at the home of Poet in the City at King's Place in London. The first poet I remember hearing was Ted Hughes, actually, amazingly. An extraordinary performance in Bristol when I was about 13. I'd already begun to read him on the page and I had a sense of this extraordinary strong voice coming through the the lines on the page, but I had no concept of his accent or the kind of gravelly depth of his voice. This was in the 1970s. It wasn't very common for poets to read in public, or at least I had no experience of it at that point. And there was an amazing event where he came on and he was grumpy and monosyllabic and almost had his back to the audience. He had a coat on, as I remember. He kept his coat on during the reading and read these extraordinary poems, poems from Crow and from the Moortown Diary and these incredibly dark, blood-drenched nature poems. Not naturey at all, violent, bloody things, amazingly strong. The pond I fished fifty yards across, whose lilies and muscular tench had outlasted every visible stone of the monastery that planted them, stilled legendary depth. It was as deep as England, It held pike too immense to stir, so immense and old that past nightfall I did not cast, but silently cast and fished with the hair frozen on my head for what might move, for what I might move. And the voice was incredibly important, although you could only catch sort of every third word. It was a kind of tonal performance, a bit like a kind of angry drone and that stayed with me. I then went back to those poems on the page and began to make much more sense of them and feel them to be inhabited by a real person and a real presence. Allen Ginsberg, Allen Ginsberg. 
There have been times in history when poetry and performance has made an impact and reacted to its culture and its times in new and exciting ways. An event called the Poetry Incarnation of 1965, where Allen Ginsberg and a group of poets performed to an audience of 7,000 people at the Royal Albert Hall, is one that often gets a mention. I asked Tim if this event was helpful when we think about notable and interesting poetry performances of the past. I think that the, the famous concert in, in June 1965, or concert is maybe not the word, the, the performance at the Royal Albert Hall, which had Allen Ginsberg, Gregory Corso, Harry Fainlight, Adrian Mitchell, Christopher Logue, Michael Horowitz performing, which you can look at online these days as a film recording. It was an amazing event. I think it's, it's a, in a way, in our minds now, it's become a kind of blocker to an understanding of what poetry is and has been. I think that event gathered together and came at a particular moment. It gathered together a number of performers who were working within an idiom of quite declarative public poetry. 1965, this is before the kind of summer of love, but it's, it's moving towards the absolute apogee of the, of the 60s moment, if you like. It's moving towards a time when jazz became at its freest, pop art was its most cartoonish, theatre, Peter Brook and, and kind of street performance were, were evolving and, and changing the nature of what we thought spectacle might mean. I think it's also very important to remember that at the same time, T.S. Eliot wasn't long finished recording his poems, that Ted Hughes and, and other more younger British poets were still very interested in working in what might be a, an older, more conservative tradition of utterance, if you like, the carefully made poem that wasn't going to be given easily to an audience because it was the fruit of enormous amounts of effort and concentration. It demanded a different sort of attention. It principally demanded the attention you might give it on the page. The Ginsberg, Gregory Corso, Christopher Loeb, Michael Horowitz moment was separate but continuous with a lot of other poetic activity. I looked at the film, a wonderful black and white documentary film called Holy Communion that was made at that concert at the Albert Hall. And the biggest applause, I think, goes to Adrian Mitchell's poem, To Whom It May Concern, which contains the famous line, Tell Me Lies About Vietnam, as a refrain. That gets the biggest round of applause. It's, uh, that's a very strong poem, I think, and, and remains a strong poem to this day. It's accumulative, incantatory, angry, and he, he works it very well. He's wearing a tie. He looks like every mother's favourite son. So the moment is fantastically captured there. This angry man, still well-dressed, polite, but telling us something that's hard-hitting, painful and radical to hear. It was a wonderful moment where jazz, rock and roll, painting, cinema, performance, poetry all came together in the mid-1960s. Not long after that, it went, it went its own respective ways or, or burnt itself out. And the journey from there to now is a, is a long and difficult, torturous one. But it was, an, it was definitely, that was a, an interesting moment. But it's striking that poetry since then, and poetry and performance, has sort of replayed some of those same games. You know, do you, do you write for the page? Do you write for the quiet internal voice? Do you write for the, a public audience in a, in a declarative way? And of course, poetry can take both of those paths. And it's good, the sign of a healthy culture would be to have a shouty poetry on the one hand and a whispered poetry on the other. From poetry performances of the past to poets writing here and now,
what do today's poets make with the page stage relationship? I met up with former poet laureate and patron of Poet in the City, Sir Andrew Motion, in between teaching at his office in Bedford Square, Royal Holloway, University of London. And I put the question about the page stage from a writer's perspective to him. Well, this is a question that I've spent a great deal of time thinking about in one way or another, the relationship between the stage and the page, except that I don't quite put it to myself in these terms. It comes down to being about stage and page. But with me it begins, and actually really ends, with being more about page and voice, or page and sound. And I started to think about this way back because... I remember my English teacher in my my first A-level year giving us a bit of The Wasteland to read. And like everybody who looks at The Wasteland for the first time, which is rather interesting about The Wasteland, given that it's nearly 100 years old now, looking at it and thinking, what? And not understanding very much of it, if anything. And then him putting on this recording of Eliot reading it, one of the recordings of Eliot reading it, and me noticing that the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. So over the years, I have thought about this quite... A lot. In fact, I would say that it really lay at the centre of all my thinking about poems, actually. And then, in my teaching and in my writing, um, as the years have gone by, it's, it's only grown in importance. Not really departing very much from the original idea of there being a very powerful linked value in the acoustic world that a poem creates. That was certainly the motivating force in me setting up the Poetry Archive, it's the motivating force in helping to set up Poetry by Heart, this competition for school kids to recite poems aloud. So it's had all kinds of quite dynamic manifestations in my life at a practical level and in a writing level. But I think all poems, when they're recited aloud, are performance poems. I think when I'm giving a reading, I am giving a performance. It happens not to be a very, quotes theatrical one. And despite my name, I don't move around very much and I don't wave my arms around and those sorts of things. But... I know that I'm spending quite a lot of the energy that goes into this thing, this activity, trying to project the poems with my voice in a way which is, allows their meanings to become manifest in the sound that I'm making, so that when people go back to them on the page or have the page open in front of them as they're listening to me, they feel that these are completely compatible activities. When you're actually in the process of writing a poem, are you... Do you speak lines out loud? Is that part of the actual process? Absolutely. I, I um, make quite a lot of noise when I'm writing poems. Not in the very earliest stages, but as soon as the thing is at all decipherable on the page, then one of my kind of principles of revision is deeply to do with how it sounds. I don't just mean making sure that I've got my stresses right and so on, got my metrics sorted out, but in whether... The sounds that the words have, the cadences of the words, the qualities that the words have as noises contribute to the meaning that I'm trying to get at vividly enough and appropriately. Anne Frank House, Andrew Motion. Even now, after twice her lifetime of grief and anger in the very place, Whoever comes to climb these narrow stairs discovers how the bookcase slides aside, then walks through shadow into sunlit rooms, can never help but break her secrecy again. Just listening is a kind of guilt. The Westerkirk repeats itself outside, as if all time worked round towards her fear and made each stroke die down on guarded streets. Imagine it. 
Three years of whispering and loneliness and plotting day by day the Allied line in Europe with a yellow chalk. What hope she had for ordinary love and interest survives her here, displayed above the bed as pictures of her family, some actors, fashions chosen by Princess Elizabeth. And those who stoop to see them find not only patience missing its reward, but one enduring wish for chances like my own, to leave as simply as I do and walk at ease up dusty tree-lined avenues, or watch a silent barge come clear of bridges, settling their reflections in the Blue Canal. That was Juliet Stevenson reading, and I'll be talking to Juliet a little bit later on. I write for understanding, understanding of myself. I write about me, mostly. Mostly I write for nothing, but sometimes I write for money. I write for recognition. My poetry is a protest. Just because I don't march doesn't mean I don't care. I can write in solidarity. I don't have to be there on the street. When a million men march on a beat, I stand a cappella on my own two feet. I can speak against injustice from a stage or on the page. I'm a poet. That was Dean Attar reading an extract from his poem Paper Cuts. Dean is another poet writing today, but one who has quite a different experience of the page-stage relationship, coming from a younger generation of poets from a performance and spoken word tradition where mixing up mediums and forms is commonplace, from performing monologues, poems, storytelling or putting his poems to music. Dean is one of many artists now that are going this time from stage to page. I met up with him at Keats House in London. I started off writing and then performing my poems, so I would write them, learn them, and take them somewhere to share them. I have an acting background, so I've been acting since I was quite young, so I was used to going on stage, not with my own words, but once I started doing it, it felt, it felt fine. I didn't feel too nervous about it, and I especially learning my poems, I felt like it was a, a performance, and that's really what I was hoping to do well, perform them really well. That was kind of what I was about when I started. When I was asked to put together my, my anthology, my first collection of work, I knew which poems I wanted to go in there, but when I went to look for some of them, they, they weren't on my computer. They might have been on my previous computer or on a piece of paper, but once I'd learnt them, I didn't necessarily need the written copy, that, because I, no one was looking at that. I wasn't posting my poems online in a written form. I wasn't sharing my poetry in any sort of pamphlet or anything. I was just performing. So yeah, when I was asked to put together my book, I had to, you know, rewrite some of the poems from my head, from memory, because they didn't exist in writing anywhere. I love those moments when I've been to a live poetry reading and as the poem's just finished, there's that murmur that goes around the audience, that sense that what's just been heard has hit people and reached them in a new way. For many writers like Dean Atta, the stage is important because it's a public, social and political space, an opportunity to have a collective as well as a personal experience. Perhaps following from the declarative tradition of Allen Ginsberg and Adrian Mitchell, it's an opportunity to speak out or reach out and connect with the experience of others. I spoke to Dean about this aspect of the stage and some of the reaction that's come about from his poetry how language and the human voice are powerful and can have a ripple effect in the world. I think regardless you know, of where you are in the world, there is someone 
saying something through poetry that, that needs to be said and that maybe isn't said otherwise, you know, in other mediums. My poem Young, Black and Gay got a lot of response because it was particularly, you know, embraced in strange ways by like hip hop and grime music um, people and they posted it on blogs and stuff to kind of elicit a reaction, I think, to say, oh yeah, there's this guy, he does poetry, he's gay, he's chatting about it. And so people would post it up and and see what people would say because I was so like forceful with what I was saying about being young, black and gay and being proud about it. But then, yeah, Young, Black and Gay had a lot of response and it got radio play, the BBC played it and I actually made a documentary about homophobia and hip-hop, you know, on the back of making that or releasing that poem. The other poem that got a lot of response was I Am Nobody's Nigger. And again, you know, the hip-hop angle was, I think, what got people really interested in it because I was talking about certain rappers using the word nigger in their, in their raps and also I'd mentioned Stephen Lawrence in there and at a time when... It was back in the public eye, rightly so, and um, it's very emotive. So I didn't necessarily realise it would be so big of a deal to people, but it was. And so that got a lot of YouTube hits and, and, and a lot of national press as well, which was really shocking um, because, you know, I didn't see that happen with poems before. And maybe I had never noticed it before, but it just seemed like it was a zeitgeist moment for me anyway where things came together in my experience and it connected with other people's experiences and things that they'd wanted to say. Dean recently performed at a Poet in the City event about the future of live poetry. Here he is reading the title poem of his new collection. The last poem I'd like to do is a title poem of my book and um, it's called I'm Nobody's Nigger and it goes like this. I... I'm nobody's nigger. Rappers, when you use the word nigger, remember, that's one of the last words Stephen Lawrence heard. So don't tell me it's a reclaimed word. I am nobody's nigger. So please, let my ancestors rest in peace, not turn in their graves in Jamaican plantations or the watery graves of the slave trade, thrown overboard into the middle passage just for insurance claims. They were chained up on a boat, as many as they could manage and stay afloat, stripped of dignity and all hope, awaiting their masters and European names. But the sick and the injured were dead weight to toss, and Lloyds of London would cover that cost. I am nobody's nigger, so you can tell Wheezy and Drake that they made a mistake. I am nobody's nigger now, so you can tell Kanye and Jigger I am not a nigger. I'm not a nigger in London. I'm not a nigger in New York. I'm not a nigger in Kingston. I'm not a nigger in Accra or a nigger with attitude in Compton because I don't want to be called your nigger. How were you raised on public enemy and still became your own worst enemy? You killed hip hop and resurrected headless zombies that can't think for themselves or see where they're going or quench the blood lust because there's no blood flowing in their hearts, just in the streets. But they don't give a damn. As long as they're eating, their hearts ain't beating. They're as cold as ice, bling. Because they would put money over everything. Money over self-respect or self-esteem. Or empowering the youth to follow their dreams. Stacking paper because it's greater than love, it seems. Call me nigger because you're scared of what brother means. To know that we share something unspeakable. To know that as high as we rise, we are not seen as equal. To know that racism is institutional thinking. And that nigger is the last word you heard before a lynching. Thank you.
Taking poetry that's on the page and turning that into a live reading is no mean feat. I remember going to a reading once and hearing a poem which, to be honest, I thought was pretty dull. And then by chance, I was at another reading just a few months later and I heard the same poem again, but performed by a different performer and it sounded like a completely new poem. As well as a poet's perspective on the page stage, I wanted to talk to a performer of poetry. Actors often read at Poet in the City events and one who's performed for us before is the actress Juliet Stevenson. I met her at her house in North London and sitting at her kitchen table with two mugs of hot tea and a big book of poems, we discussed her experience of poetry and the art of bringing a poem on the page to life. In terms of, obviously as an actress, you know, you're on the stage, you perform, read scripts and that sort of thing. How is, how is that different to, to poetry? Oh, it's really different. It's really different. Although, interestingly, I became an actress through reading a poem on a stage when I was nine so there is a connection and it was an Auden poem I read on stage and it was something I'd picked up it was a pile of material they were putting on a little sort of concert for parents at the end of term or something and we were encouraged to get up and sing something or read something and they had a lot of material lying on a table and I picked up a piece of paper and there was an Auden poem on it and I read it inside my head and I thought I have to read this out loud I have to be the person who reads this and this is what I have to read and It was the rhythm. I didn't really understand it. It was a love poem from a man to another man, I guess. Now I would know that, but I didn't know it at nine. And um, But it doesn't matter. I wanted to read it out loud, and I loved the rhythms of it and the repetitions in it. And I'm talking about this experience because I think it's very quintessential about being on stage because I felt myself to be like a conduit for some reason, and heaven knows why, I thought I could be a conduit through which this poem would pass. A very strong sense of that. Its rhythms, its shapes, its sounds would pass through me to the audience, and that's what I wanted to be. Later, that translated itself into being interested in acting and then becoming an actress eventually. So there is that parallel. Having said that, I think that when you're on stage playing a role, you're fully inhabiting somebody who you've created, who is some hybrid between you and this creation of the writers. But you're fully inhabiting her anyway. Whereas in poetry, I think it's quite important not to do that. I think I have a sense that the job is to serve the writer. The job, and I tell the story about the Auden poem when I was a child, because it's still really how to read poetry, I think, is that you should not interfere too much with the poet's thought. It's your job really to allow the poem to read itself, but through you. And by that I mean that you observe the rhythms and the shapes. And with with really good poetry, all great poetry, those rhythms will tell you what the poem means. You mustn't pull them around or interfere with them too much, just like a musical score. On the other hand, of course, you're also bringing thought to it to some extent. And of course, you're bound to interpret. But I think basically the job is to serve the writing and share it with an audience and not to own it too much. As well as the difference between performing poetry and performing drama, I asked Juliet to pick a favourite poem and show me how she takes the words on the page and translates them into performance. If you talk me through what goes on, you've, you've met the, the words on the paper. How do you turn that into a... Into a, a know, reading? Yeah, into a living poem. Well, the first thing I would do is to read it myself in my head, 
And then I suppose I'd start looking at the structure. And one of the reasons I chose this poem, Musée des Beaux-Arts by um, W.H. Auden, is because it's actually written in iambic pentameter, just like Shakespeare. And that's a fantastic example how looking at rhythm helps you into the meaning. Iambic pentameter, it's one strong beat, one light beat. So da-da, 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 da-da. So you've got to be or not to be, that is the question. And here you've got about suffering, they were never wrong. Well, literally, you've got about suffering, they were never wrong. So suffering has got a strange uh, relationship to its beat, which lifts the word out and you hear it. They were never wrong. The last word of the line is wrong and it lands on its fifth beat and has the support of that beat and it's a monosyllable. So it gives it added strength. I never run at the end of a line completely on as though it wasn't there. I always give it a tiny suggestion of a mark. So the next line is the old masters. How well they understood, end of line, its human position. So I'd never say how well they understood its human position. You can retain the sense absolutely, but if you mark the end of the line, the word understood has that tiny little bit of air which gives it more significance as a thought, and then you move the thought on. He's very, very clear about uh, punctuation. Again, I would never ignore punctuation. So how well they understood its human position, semicolon, how it takes place, end of line, while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. No punctuation there. That's all one line. While someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. So you have the rhythm of all those activities just continually moving and that's what the line is doing too. There's a whole workshop you can do on this stuff. But it's delicious work, I think, because it just, the structure contains the meaning. And this is, this is like Shakespeare. This is why Shakespeare, I just don't think you should gobble it and gobble it and turn it into like everyday speech because it's not. It has got that formality about it. But the job is to make it sound as though you're just talking like we do, you know, like this now. But you allow the structure of it, as you do with a poem, to take you through the, the complexity of the thoughts Structure and thought and breath are all connected. Musée des Beaux-Arts. He's writing about that, a painting, the painting of Icarus falling out of the sky, the, the myth of Icarus flying with his father, and his father said, don't fly too near the sun, but Icarus um, can't resist it, and as we all know, melted the wax, and his, the feathers fell off, and he lost his wings, and he plunged into the sea. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course, anyhow, in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away 
quite leisurely from the disaster. The ploughman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry. But for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing. A boy falling out of the sky had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. What's the state of play for poetry on the stage today? And where's it headed? What's the direction for the art form and performance in our culture now? What do audiences today want? With the internet allowing global access for poetry across the world and writers able to post up poems, blogs and performances on social media, how's technology and the internet changing the way we think about and access poetry? What does the future look like for live poetry performance? BBC producer Tim D offers some thoughts. I think poetry is, is healthily diverse at the moment and performance is at the centre of its diversity. There is now a lot of writers who are working as performance poets. There are writers who are thinking of their work first and foremost as being heard rather than being written. And some of those writers are now beginning to bleed themselves into writers who are writing, producing books and are having more elaborate ideas, if you like, more, more long-term ideas about how their work might endure, evolve, persist. I think one of the good effects of, if you like, poetry becoming the new rock and roll, if we ever believe that, and more substantially of there being the co-evolution of poetry and performance alongside poetry written for the page is that the poetry that is written for the page has got more alert more recently to the importance of those poems being able to be given by the poet. I think it's no longer possible to become a poet and to work as a poet without having a view and, and a skill at taking your poetry out and about in performance, really. I think there was a period where you could be silent as a poet, or you could make your noise entirely in print. Nowadays, I, I think that's harder and harder. I think the poets who are successful these days and the poets who are meeting and reaching their audience are actually talking their poems out loud as much as writing them on the page. And no poet can only write for the page any longer. I think a lot of um, people who went to theatre, people who went to comedy on stage, which is, you know, is in my lifetime has totally changed the idea of what, of what language in performance might mean. The, the feral nature of theatre these days where documentary material, fantastical material, single voice monologues, a meeting, you know, huge ensembles, musicals about difficult contemporary subjects. You know, the, the, the borders are, have changed massively. They're much more porous than they used to be. And I think poetry's necessarily and inevitably part of that. Audiences expect a kind of bigger package, if that's not the right word. I mean, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that we live in a... We're living in an increasingly screened and digitised world where we can access filmed versions of 
things or audio versions of vastly more than we could a few years ago so that the idea of the, of the poem in performance becomes part of the great online archive uh, you know you can dial up Ezra Pound reading now you can dial up T.S. Eliot you can dial up Ted Hughes that is extraordinary and the existence of, of this amazing hard drive of poetic performance is absolutely determining the shape of the future as well and what audiences expect from contemporary practitioners. Ten years ago, Andrew Motion set up the Poetry Archive, a free online resource making poetry readings available from across the ages. Here are his thoughts to the archive, to technology and to the state of play for poetry and performance. Yeah, the response to the archive is extraordinary. We have nearly 300,000 people a month using it now, and every month they listen to nearly 2 million pages of poetry. That in itself allows us to say something rather amazing, which is that good stuff is being read in larger quantity, in a larger quantity now than it's ever done, been done before in the history of the human race. So the next time we feel all depressed about cultural matters, we can remind ourselves of that and feel cheerful about it. In an odd sort of way, I think that the network of readings that now exists, and even more definitely in the sense that it allows for a wider distribution, the internet has allowed this ancient truth about poems to become asserted in a way that makes us realise that for the last thousand years, nearly, we perhaps haven't been thinking about it enough. The printed book is an absolutely wonderful thing. But the internet has allowed to be remembered, something that the guys in the Mead Hall knew very well. I don't think the guys in the Mead Hall would be at all surprised by the Poetry Archive. I mean, they might be a bit surprised by the internet, but they, I don't think they'd be at all surprised by the Poetry Archive because it's really in spirit very closely akin to what they were doing when they were standing up after their um, mead and venison sandwich and doing whatever they did. I've always thought that poetry, though it has a reputation for being rather kind of fancy and complex, often for very good reasons, is fundamentally a very primitive thing. I love Andrew Motion's image of the guys in the mead hall or in the tavern raising a glass of mead or beer and having a raucous old time doing their poetry. And I'd like to think that if there was a way that they could travel across time and see us here today or stand at the back of a Poet in the City event, they'd be raising their glasses in approval of poetry and performance today and of its future in all its diversity and many forms. Thank you for listening to this Poet in the City podcast. For more information, go to www.poetinthecity.co.uk.